all of you guys, excuse me, I'm getting situated here. Sometimes I forget to do my part. Um, so good to see all you guys. If you are new here with us, my name is John Wagler, and I'm uh, part of this team here. And just so grateful um, that you decided to spend a portion of your Sunday uh, here with us. We are in this series on the book of Ephesians, to which, you know, we're going to take, uh, I think, 12 total weeks um, with this. But um, we've been in this, this letter for, for quite some time. So if you're hopping into this, well, let me just say this first um, before I kind of give you a little recap. Um, I'm going to talk about sex today. So if you were wondering, like, when should we check out the kids' stuff? <laughs> today would be a good option. And so, um, but, uh, you know, we're in this letter. And what's really cool about this letter from Paul is he, he wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. And this would have been a letter that would have been circulated to actually more than just the church at Ephesus. But what he does on the front end of this letter is he's like, man, like, let me just tell you this incredible story about Jesus and, and what it means for your life and how big this story is. And uh, it's not just for you personally, but what it means for uh, the church and what it means for uh, the world and in the story of Jesus and what it means to like this cosmic like element um, as well. And so he's, it's like this huge, massive story. And within the context of the story that he's telling, he's like, man, let me just tell you about how uh, through all this, let me, let me tell you what's been revealed to me through the Spirit of God. And as I share this, these revelations with you, let me also share how this reconciles you to not only God, but to one another. And so this becomes like a huge thing throughout uh, this entire letter. And in chapter four, um, it pivot points to where Paul moves from a like kind of high theology and high level kind of conversation into more practical stuff. And so the last couple of weeks we've been talking about a lot of practical things, including last week when Nicole was talking about anger. And, um, and so then he pivots into this chapter five, which we're going to start off with uh, here today. Um, chapter five, we're going to be in it for the next three weeks. And it's some interesting teachings. And it'll start off with today's interesting teaching. And, um, but it's going to also move into next week. We're going to um, talk about the uh, submission between man and woman. What does that look like? And um, some of you guys uh, be really excited about that one. Um, but, uh, um, and then the week after that about like what marriage um, looks like and what it should look like and some of the other kind of household code things that Paul goes through. And so I'm really excited to, to teach about the, in these next three weeks because um, there's been a lot of, um, a lot of these passages have been used to hurt people. And so uh, I want to give us like maybe a little bit bigger understanding of what, what Paul was talking and kind of diving into uh, there. Um, but yeah, so today we're actually going to um, talk about sex. And so just to get everyone on the same page, so you get a guy and you get a woman, right? And they get attracted to each other, right? And then what ends up happening, oh, I'm just kidding. We want to do that. Anyway. There's not going to be a lot of, I had to get a cheap laugh in the beginning because there's not going to be a lot of laughter in this one. Um, but let me, let me just talk about some of the things that, um, around this topic that I just want you to know, first of all, I'm not going to cover everything around this topic today. Um, this is a very deep and dense thing to talk about. And um, we've talked about it several times here over the years. And uh, but I'm not going to cover everything. And so you might have some questions off of some things that I say. And feel free to, to email those things in. All right, you can email them to info at hillcityrva.com. And, um, 
And, and we'll answer those on our Stay Curious podcast. And so we'd love to just gather some of the questions that you guys have. Um, so I'm not going to cover everything. Um, I do also want to highlight um, two books that are important um, that I've read recently that I think are truly incredible books. All right, so um, just so you can get a picture of them. These two books, um, I read them, both of them over the last four or five weeks. Um, they are awesome. And I mean, they're probably the two best books that I've read, you know, in the past 15 years on sex and our faith. And, um, and, and, and it doesn't even matter if you're married or not. These are incredible, incredible books um, to engage. And, um, and you can send me thank you emails and gift cards if you want to uh, later. Um, but they're really, really good. But let me just, I'll leave that up there just so you can get it. But let me just also say this about this topic. Um, I realize how much pain there has been for people around talking about sex and sexuality. Um, I realize that there have been a lot of abuse, that there's been a lot of like big issues around this that have been so hurtful. And, um, and so I do not take this lightly. Yes, I've joked around a little bit here, but I don't take this lightly because I know the second you mention it, um, there can be things that get kind of drawn up in us. And whether that was because of abuse or maybe past decisions that we made, um, or maybe something that you were taught that, you know, turned out to put you in like a really odd spot um, around this. And so um, I don't take that part uh, lightly. I realize that um, everyone has a unique experience around this as well. Um, even you as an individual have a unique experience around this. Um, and so much of our, um, our upbringing impacts like how we approach this topic, um, our religious experience impacts how we approach this topic. You know, what we've experienced in life has a, a huge um, uh, uh, impact on it. Um, I also realize that the church has often been really awful at talking about this. And um, some of the stories I've heard from you guys and um, just through counseling sessions, like what you were raised with and how um, the church talked about this, it's it's been truly horrific in some scenarios, not every scenario, but in, in some. And so I realize that that's a, a reality uh, around this. Um, you know, it pains me to think of how often, you know, when we think about how we begin to view any kind of topic or um, issue in the church um, or in our lives, we are so impacted by the world around us, Right like in the narratives around us. And, and quite often, like a lot of times I think, oh no, I have free will, I've, I've, I decided to think this way. I'm like, well, not necessarily. Like you, yes, you have the ability to think and to choose, but like you're so impacted by like just things around us, like in, in people around us and, and everything. Um, a lot of new research is showing that like, even in our decisions, like about 53% of our decisions are, are, are kind of put on us. Like we're not even actually deciding over half of the things we decide to do. It's like just from outside influences. And, um, and so anyway, there's just a lot that goes into this. And it always pains me to hear people be like, oh, when I was a kid, I couldn't ask questions. Or, uh, you know, man, I was taught this, or, you know, whatever. Or, or the way that the church has, like, treated this subject matter um, has been so bad. And so I just want us um, to understand that, like, hey, we want to be able to talk about it. No matter what that, you know, angle is around this, I want us to be able to talk about it and answer questions and have, like, really good dialogue around it that's fruitful, um, because that's not necessarily the case all the time um, in church environments. And even when you think about 
examples of like bad teaching. I wrote a few down here because of, of how often I've heard this in like in our counseling, when I'm counseling people. And so often, you know, you, you grow up in church atmospheres where like sex is like this um, body thirsty monster that like, you know, men can't control it. And like women, you just got to do your part. And it's just a weird dynamic that gets set up. I, I remember um, hearing a guy recently say this. He said, man, the church seems to think a woman dressing a little immodestly is a worse sin than the lust that is at the core of a man. And uh, it reminded me of this meme that I saw a while ago. It says, you know, anyone who looks at a woman lustful intent has already committed adultery with their heart. That's Jesus. And then someone responds, but what if her tunic is too small? And he says, okay, let's try that from the beginning. And... Um, <laughs> But this is what can often happen is the truth is, is the way that sex has been talked about within the context of the church and in scripture, a lot of times women get hurt in it. And, um, and then men get hurt in it though too because they're given, a, they're given a teaching and a way to think about it that's incredibly unhealthy. And so um, there's a best-selling author who's written a ton of marriage books and maybe one that I won't say his name, but maybe one that you've actually written. He's written some good stuff on marriage. Um, but he said this about sex in one of his recent books. He says that men have a flickering in their brains day and night waiting to seize the next sexual opportunity. And this is a Christian book. And I'm thinking to myself, what does that say to a woman? Because like, to a woman, then you're just like, oh, he, that man must just be looking at me as like his next flickering thought of sexual opportunity. Or... Or what does that say to a man that you're just this, you can't control it. I mean, it's just, it's just the way it is. You know, you're just a sexual monster. Or what does it say about like, the teachings of like, the fruit of the spirit and the transformation that like, we, we say in one way that like, God will transform your life. And then you're like, but men with sex, sorry. You're just, you can't, you can't control yourself. And so it's this weird thing that ends up happening with some of these teachings that actually like push us in the wrong direction. Um, even uh, I've heard preaching and teaching on, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 7, and um, I've heard teachers use it as a way to be like, hey, uh, women or wives, you shouldn't deprive your men of sex. And I'm like, you realize how wrong that is to teach that in that way? That like, then you're essentially saying that like, to a woman, like, your needs are not that important. And that the sex is only for a man. For a man. And that it's like his needs are just way more important than, than you. And it's like, man, even the way that we begin to talk about some of these things just isn't right. And, and it's what's fascinating to me is when we get into this topic around sex and sexuality, it's like the church has lost the ability to have any voice in it. And it isn't because of what's happening outside of the church, it's because of what's happening inside of it. So what ends up happening is so often we like to blame, like, what's going on outside of the church? And that's why we're losing our moral voice and, and all this other stuff. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's like what's happening inside the church and how people are talking about it and, and what people are doing around it, that that's why we lose it. And that's why we don't, like, think about this in the right way. And that's why kids get raised in odd environments. And that's why, like, you know, there's so much guilt and shame and, and all these things that play into it that are just so bad. And so I want us to think about this a little bit differently and be challenged uh, around it this morning because the system is broken around this topic. 
within the church. And whenever the system gets broken, um, you do one of two things. You either participate in the broken system and therefore break other people, or you look for answers outside of the system. And so what's happening now is people are running outside of the church system, so to speak, because they're like, it's so broken as a whole that, like, why would I look to this? Like, it doesn't even make sense. Even recently, you know, to think about um, the amount of abuse, sexual abuse that has been, like, hidden in churches that's now coming out. It's like, it's just... It's just, it's like one on top of the other and things piling on. And so um, in this passage, I, I, I just want us to like pause for a second. And I just want to get us to a, like a starting point together around this. And, um, and again, I know this topic is way bigger, but I just want to get us to a starting point. And so when we enter into this passage, just to give you a little bit of background, um, a lot of times people say something like this, well, Wags, it's so different today around sex than it was back in Greco-Roman culture. And I'm like, no, it's not. Like, really almost at all. Like, all of the things that we see around us right now were, were present in Greco-Roman culture. Um, you know, you've got normal just, you know, uh, sex between man and woman, like in the context of marriage, that was around back then. Um, sex, same-sex relationships, they were around back then. Uh, polyamory, it was around back then. Polygamy, it was around back then. Um, pedophilia, around back then. The, the only thing truly that's different from back then to now is the internet. And so, even when we begin to think about this, it's like, well, because we don't have polygamy now, so is it better? Well, I, it's reasonable to say polygamy is coming back at some point. Um, I, I was talking with someone, um, and again, this just shows you just where everything's headed is not great. Um, polyamory, which is like the idea of like a throuple or four people saying that they're in love and they form like a relationship, like that's becoming more prevalent. Um, sex with robots is a reality and is becoming more prevalent. Um, polygamy, there's language that are being written into laws that um, are trying to leave room for polygamy to be an option in the future. And so um, all of this stuff is a reality. So, to Greco-Roman culture compared to now, I'm just saying the only difference is the internet. That's it. All right? And so when the Bible starts speaking into, like, sexuality, then it's like maybe we should pay attention. Because it's actually not out of touch. It's actually very, very relevant to, uh, um, to like, what we're talking about um, right now and will deeply matter. And so even when Paul is talking about it, he's, it there's something about our sexuality that isn't just about to another person or about you as an individual. It's also to, like, to tie it into our relationship with God. And so this becomes like a key component to how we talk about it and how we should teach um, around it. And so when Paul is actually, I want to talk about like what Paul's kind of pointing us to. And in, in this whole chapter, this becomes like really the, the core component of it, which is this, is like, what are you willing to do for healthy, sacred relationships? Because the way that we, um, Paul begins to talk about um, what's known as like the household codes um, that were such a big deal in Roman culture, Paul like is, is really trying to flip them upside down and talk about like the sacredness of all these relationships. And so he begins to kind of speak into these things uh, a little bit differently. And so um, let's go to Ephesians 5, chapter 1. And here's what it says. He says, follow God's example. All right. Follow God's example. 
in, in other passages, be, be imitators of Christ. It says, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So when he says, walk, of love, walk in the way of love, who is he referring to? You can say it. Jesus. Yes, right? Again, 90% of the time, if you just yell out Jesus, <laughs> you're probably good. Verse 3, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. So he's setting up some boundaries here. He's like, nor should there be uh, obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather, what? Say it. For of this, you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such, as a, per such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, is he saying that that person won't um, be saved? He's not necessarily saying that. But, he's, but he is saying that you will not actually experience life with Christ. Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Now, he's not saying, all right, he's not saying that you can't have um, non-Christian friends. He's not saying that. You can't be associated. He's just saying, don't let people who are not Christian shape your thoughts. Don't take your cues from them. Don't, like, do not let that be your source of wisdom. Verse 8, he says, for you were once in darkness. Here's what he's saying. That's your old self, new self, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. You were once in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists of goodness, righteousness, and truth. But that's where our lives begin to be about. And find out what pleases the Lord. He says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather, this is huge, expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is, what it, this is why it says, wake up, sleep, uh, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you, which is an old hymn they used to sing. And, um, and I want to talk about the, the, the idea of like exposing something too, because that becomes critical in this. So what do we want to do? We want to walk in the way of love. So when we talk about um, sexuality, this is the first part. It's like we want to walk in the way of love. Now, when we say yes, some of you might be like, yes, walk in the way of love. Like no matter what, that's what we operate. When I think about sex and sexuality, it's like, yes, Wags, I am in agreement. It's all about love. Sometimes we think of love the wrong way, though. Um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but um, I'm going to go ahead and guess that a lot of us in this room um, either thought we were in love before, or maybe you actually did fall in love a few different times, and you see some of the decisions that you made about being like in love that you're like, shoot. So we can't make decisions simply off of like the emotion of love. That is a false concept, and it doesn't even like logically make sense. And so when we begin to think of like, all right, love, remember what he said, it's like we base all of our decisions around the love of Christ. 
And so we start thinking about that very differently about what the love of Christ actually means. And so when, when we start with this conversation about, hey, can we talk about sex or sexuality, then what do we start with? We don't start with attraction. We start with, what does it mean to walk in the way of Christ? That's a whole different way to talk about it. So even when I've like sat with people and we start having conversations around this, um, that is like the first thing that I want to talk about. And if that's not the first thing someone else wants to talk about, then I can already understand that we, we have different starting points. And so um, we want to walk in the way of Christ. And so when you think about it this way, that our love of Christ is the starting point. So anything around this, our love of Christ is the starting point. And our view, so when someone's like, hey, what do you think about whatever, whatever the topic is, we start with the love of Christ. And what does that look like on the front end of the conversation? So individually, that's where we start. And then communally, that is where we start. And again, Paul is so concerned about um, trying to get us to understand the sacredness of our relationships. Now, the world doesn't want to do that, right? The world, we're all, in cultural narratives, will always push us away from it. But, but what Paul wants us to do is like, man, I want you to know that every single relationship that we have, and when we, when we think about it, it's like, it starts, with, it starts with the love of Christ. So if we start with the love of Christ, then every relationship is sacred. So again, they're, they're trying to divert this idea of like, um, if, a, if a man and a woman like, interact, it's not about uh, anything sexual there. And the friend is like, no, no, there's a sacredness there. And so cultural narratives um, begin to be so different. So when you think about it, I wrote this down this week. I said cultural narratives are not concerned with the love of one another. This inherently means it will devalue relationships. So when you look at the way that the culture around us talks about marriage or talks about sex or whatever, they aren't concerned actually with the love of Christ and the love of one another. That's not at the starting point of it. So inherently, if that's not at the starting point of it, then you will, you will automatically devalue that relationship. Here's why. Because when we think about the love of Christ, and we talk about this way, that that's where you actually find life and freedom, and that's where you're your fullest, hum, your, your fullest human self, then here's what this means, that, that to be anything less than that and view relationships less than that automatically means you're going to devalue that other person. And so, so we have to start thinking Man, it's, it's, it's through the love of Christ as a starting point and to walk in way and to imitate that. And so it then begs like some bigger questions for us then, right? It's like, all right, think about what culture tells you. It's like, if you're not satisfied, what do you do? Just move on to the next one. Oh, you're not sexually satisfied in a relationship? Just find someone else. Oh, you, you're, you're in a marriage that like doesn't have any intimacy or anything? That's okay. Just look for somebody else. It's not that big a deal. Or maybe you're not even wired for marriage because monogamy is not really a thing. That's, what, that's a big message that's starting to get put out there, that, we, that humans are not wired for monogamy. And so, so there's a lot of stuff that ends up happening within us that the cultural narrative ends up putting in front of us that it's like, hold on a second, this doesn't start with the love of Christ. That's not our starting point. See, the only thing that is actually sacred in the world's narrative is selfishness. And that's like selfishness because like what's like in it for you becomes the starting point. And so whether, um, I don't care what the conversation is, it's like every person 
that I sit down with around this topic, around sexuality, um, even if we defer on something, my, as I'm talking about it with them, my approach is like love of Christ first. That's it. And then when I think about it, like on a larger scale, it's like, all right, love of Christ is at the, the heart of this. And that's where I start. So we start thinking about it this way. Then what is, here's a big question. What is sexuality for? And, um, and if, you, if you were asked this question, um, you might like take a minute to like think this through, right? You're like, man, I don't know if I've ever thought about it this way. Like, what's sexuality for? Because this, this means a lot. You know, in verse 3, when Paul's kind of talking, he's like, he's setting a high standard for how we begin to approach sexuality. Um, in verse 5, he starts talking about this idea, you can't be greedy. And he's not talking about money. You can't be greedy with someone else's body. He's like, that's not what it's about. In verse 6, he says, like, don't be duped by the cultural narrative, right? Because the cultural narrative will always lower the bar. Um, one of the ways to think about this is that the world says sexuality is for pleasure and identity, yet God says it's for sacredness. And so um, at the heart of even this conversation on sexuality, it's like, no, 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 um, that is not our identity marker. It just isn't. Gay, straight, whatever, doesn't matter. It's not your identity marker. And so it, it starts with, starts with like, no, no. I got to view this very differently in, in a sacred way. And it begins to start changing what happens. And so we start seeing like, all right, then what is it actually for, right? So here are a few things that I wrote down what sexuality is actually for that we can see in scripture. Sexuality is, and even the act of sex, um, it's for to image God's covenant with us, all right? Um, God's promises to us. And so it's this idea of like, man, God's made these promises to us. And in the same way that we, that we see other people, like we want to, we wanna, when we imitate Christ, we are imitating God's promises to us. And, and this can be, listen, this can be um, in marriage or not in marriage, meaning you don't have to have an actual sexual relationship with someone to image God's covenant, and so, um, so even our sexuality, it's like, man, it, it images people in a different way. There's marital union, of course, with oneness. Um, there's procreation, right? That's just science. Um, there's, there's pleasure. Um, you, you know, God created the orgasm. And so that's the fact that God did that, then that, that means like, all right, then pleasure within the context of sex is important. And that's not just important just for the man. It's like, all right, so when we think about sex in the context of marriage, it's like, then, then it's important for both people. That's why even that teaching in 1 Corinthians 7 about, um, you know, like, wives don't deprive your husbands of, of sex. I'm paraphrasing that. Um, but that's why that teaching of, of what's been used is to say, like, oh, okay, women, no matter what you feel like, or no matter how, like, um, how emotionless your marriage is, you still need to give your husband sex. Don't deprive him of that. And it's like, that's not, like, 
That's so foreign to the way that the Bible talks about relationships and the sacredness of mutuality and mutual submission and, and everything else. And so, so the, like, even that concept is just so off. But there's this idea of, like, but pleasure matters. Pleasure matters. And, and, and if you, both those books help you out with that. Um, there's a deeper knowledge of God. Uh, in Genesis chapter 4, the word that's used for uh, to know God or uh, um, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 4, um, it says that Adam knew uh, his wife Eve. That word knew is the same word that's used in Psalm 139. Um, and, and with Adam and Eve, it refers to them having sex. And then in Psalm 139, it's this, this idea of like, man, that God knows us in the innermost parts. So there's like this deeper knowledge of God is supposed to happen through sex. Um, next one there, understanding God's longing for us. That like attraction is like that you, we understand God's longing for us. In the same way that you might long for something, it's like God longs for his people. You know, it's fascinating throughout scripture how often um, the idea of either marriage or um, sex even of, of itself is, is used as a descriptor of God's connection with his people. Even so much so that a lot, there, there are times in the Old Testament, several times, where he talks about you adulterous people, like when they've gone away from God. And he's like, man, you're going outside of what it's supposed to be like. And so there's something to all of this in the longing and the understanding and the, the, the oneness that happens. And then, then sex is also supposed to, it's also, um, sexuality is supposed to also point to what's awaiting us in heaven. But there's actually something far greater than this in heaven. I mean, far greater. Yet people make so, much, so many decisions off of like a moment. And so we begin to start thinking about all of this stuff very, very differently. So you might be thinking to yourself, well, but I'm single. Or sex isn't an option for me. Or maybe I'm older or whatever. I don't, I don't, you might be like processing that list and like, so I'm lacking. And I would say, no, you're not lacking. Even when we look at this list, it's, um, even as a single person, like, does it create certain boundaries around this? Y yes, it does. But it doesn't mean you're lacking, because to say that you're lacking would also mean to say that Jesus was lacking, or Paul was lacking, or so many other people um, were lacking because they weren't able to have sex. And, and it's like we live with a scarcity mindset rather than saying, like, I mean, we just sang songs like, you know, about how much we need God, right? Or an identity marker is child of love and, and everything else. Um, I have a friend, David Bennett, who um, he spoke here. A while ago, he wrote a book called *The War of Loves*. He, um, he's a Christian. Um, he's uh, he's gay. He's you know he has uh, he's attracted to men, um, but he he's chosen a life of celibacy. And so we were talking on the phone one time, and he said this to me. He goes, he goes, John, um, I actually image heaven way more than you do. And I said, what do you mean? And he's like, well, there's not going to be sex in heaven. And he's like, and I've chosen that, like, in my life, I'm not going to, I'm just not going to do it. And because I, he, he was a man, woman, in marriage, and, and, and he's like, and so he goes, I can have things here and now and represent God in a way that you cannot. And he said, listen, there are great things about your marriage and, and all those, and like, yes to all of those things. He's like, but I can also do things that you can't do. And he's like, so, so he's like, so even when we talk about this conversation around sexuality, he's like, he's like, there's, there are plenty of things that I can do 
and I find my fullness and my hope. Is it easy? No. It's not easy. And he'll admit that. He, has, he goes, man, there are times where like, he wonders, can I you know, do this? But he's like, but man, I find my hope in Christ. And I'm dedicated to that. And it reshapes his whole opinion of everything. And it's just a fascinating way to begin. I'm like, man, people don't talk about sex that way. That's not like a normal thing. Like, I don't know a lot of people that talk about sexuality that way. I just don't. And it's a whole other way to begin to view this. So you might be thinking, well, you might be thinking, well, Wags, I'm old or older. This doesn't apply to me. And I would say, yes, it does. If, if you're in a marriage and, and maybe this is not part of your marriage any longer for one reason or another, um, I would say that the reality of your sexuality and um, intimacy within marriage is supposed to be there. And so a deepening knowledge of one another and what it means to image God in the midst of this does actually matter in your marriage. It doesn't matter how old you are. Like, it, it matters. And this conversation really matters. Think about it this way, too. If sex is this profound, then it makes sense that it's also one of the biggest battlegrounds of temptation. And so, you know, if you think about the way Hollywood talks about it or music does or whatever, it's always twisted. It's always um, trying to manipulate in a certain way. And this becomes like a really big part of how we begin to embrace this. Think about it this way. If you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow or next week, would you sit there and be like, man, I got to go have sex really quick? <laughs> right? Like that doesn't... And I'm not, listen, I'm not demeaning the realities of sex in the context of marriage and the pleasure of it. I'm not. But it's like, again, conceptually, we've got to start like thinking the starting point of all of this. I get it. There's all these other conversations <laughs> that have to happen. But I'm just talking about like just on the front end of how we begin to engage. You know, it's interesting. Paul gives us like three antidotes to sexual immorality in the, the, way, the way he refers to it. In, in verse one, he talks about that we're supposed to imitate Christ. We image Christ and how we go about our lives. And so it's like, man, like, how, how do I like imitate Christ around this? What does that begin to look like? The other thing that he says is thankfulness. This one's fascinating to me. Now that I say this and you begin to read your Bible, um, it's shocking how often uh, a writer in the Bible uses thankfulness as a way to be the antidote to some kind of like wrong action. Like thankfulness. And it's interesting because I think what he's pointing to is that thankfulness to God actually aligns ourselves with the truth of God. Because we live in this attitude of like, I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful for this stage of life, whatever that stage of life is. Or I'm thankful for this, and so it then allows me to align, my, align myself with the truth of God. Even if you've been through a really hard thing around this topic, whether that's abuse or whatever it is, I'm not saying you are thankful for the abuse. I'm not saying that. But what if you're thankful for God's love for you? And that's just where you start. And I know there's like counseling and therapy and all those other things that have to happen. But I'm like, what if, what if, what if that's the starting point? Like it begins to change. Or, or what if like our attitude, like think about like, I'm thankful for my body. All right, so I don't want to just do whatever I want with my body. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. 
And, and listen, in my thankfulness for, for my own self and for what you've done for me, God, I want to look at the other person. I'm thankful for them. So I don't want to abuse them in any kind of way or be selfish with them in any kind of way. It realigns us to the truth of who God is. And then vulnerability. That was the part that he was talking about earlier. Remember he said like, to expose things? You know, right now, um, every month, about one million, uh, every month, there's one million more pornographic sites. And so, they just keep piling on, one after another, after another, after another, after another. And, um, and so, we begin to see, like, wh- why do you want to expose things? Well, you want to bring things to light, because you know, like, I mean, when things are done, in, when, you're, when you hide things, what happens? It gets, the shame gets piled on. The, the behavior becomes more deviant and dark. It's like, no, we expose them to the light so that they can be like what? Brought into the light of who God is. And it changes everything. So I wrote, I, I often, whenever I talk about sex, I often pull this up because I just think it's important to see. So the way of Christ's love is a starting point. This would mean, if we were to kind of go this route, there would be no rape, no STDs, no adultery, no divorce, no pornography, no regrets, no burnt images into our brains, no obje- uh, objectification, no lust, no body image issues, no sex trafficking, no prostitution, no misogyny, no sexual greed, no pressure to use sex for att- uh, attention, and no idolizing marriage or the act of sex. I feel like that's better. <laughs> and so... Maybe we just need a different starting point. And maybe, listen, it, you, you will not, <laughs> um, I can't stress this to you enough. I, I'm not condemning anyone. I'm not um, judging anyone. Um, I've been very open and honest from this stage about my own story. But my hope is no matter where you're at, that you will experience the grace of God in such a profound way that you actually, the only thing you can possibly do is think, man, when it comes to my sex and sexuality, like, I've got to start with, like, what does the love of Christ actually look like? When it comes to dealing with your decisions on whether or not you should or shouldn't, rather than saying things like, well, how far is too far? That was like the classic college and high school question. That the question is, like, how do I imitate Christ the most? When it comes into your marriage and you feel like maybe it's gotten a little lifeless or intimacy-less, what if we started thinking about it? Yeah, but what does it mean to fully invest in one another in such a way that it's like, man, we we bring this intimacy back to where it should be so we can image Christ within our marriage? What about if, like, just communally with friends and everything, it's like, man, how how do we have, like, deep, enriching friendships that are so fruitful that we begin to image the promises of God? What if, in the midst of feeling broken and bruised and Like, you're not enough, and it's because, like, something that's happened to you. You have a moment that you're like, God, I'm thankful um, 
for your love for me. I'm thankful that what happened in my past is not what's going to write the future of my story. I'm thankful that there can be a redemptive element to all of this. What if those things are just the starting points? And we begin to think about this stuff just differently. We talk about it differently. We, we help each other differently. Um, everything begins to change. I just want to leave you with two questions to process here together. And that's this. What would change if, in your life if you had strong sexual boundaries, a thankful heart, and a freedom to be vulnerable? And then the second question there is, does your view on sex and sexuality allow you to imitate Christ? Because if we believe, as we're about to sing, we're about to sing about Christ being our firm foundation. See, a lot of times what happens is like we, we think, oh, if I don't get what I want here, then it's going to feel like I'm a failure. Or if I don't get what I want here, then I won't, that I won't like, be fully satisfied. But we're going to sing in this song, it's like, no, 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 no. Like God's, when we set our hearts and minds and everything on the firm foundation of the love of Christ, here's what we know. He won't ever fail us. He won't. You, you might think you're lacking on the front end, but he won't fail you. It begins to set us in a whole different direction. So I want everyone to just bow their heads for a minute. and Because um, here's what I know, that God's always like having us process things. And I just want you to do that for just a second here. And the band's going to get up here and lead us in this last song. So God, this morning, I know there are a lot of stories here, um, probably a lot of opinions too and perspectives. And, um, and God, there are a lot of, there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain. But God, my hope today was just to get us to a starting point together. That, that's it. And um, that we would begin to see you in this whole conversation and that we would begin to just frame it very differently. It frames our pain differently, um, frames our decisions differently, frames our relationships differently, frames our, um, our identity differently. And so God, I just pray that we'd be open to what that could mean for us and the freedom that could be found in you. Will you stand and sing this last song?